Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And as Kevin said, um, our Good Friday service is one of our favorite services all year around. So uh, we do invite you, invite your neighbors in. And one detail, so this is kind of, the Good Friday service feels like a funeral. And then Easter service, service feels like a, a wedding, feels like a, a celebration. And so dress accordingly. On Friday night, we typically and historically, we wear black like we're going to a funeral. And it's a very somber and serious sermon and, or service but it's, uh, it's deeply, deeply worshipful as well. So be prepared for that and come expectantly. <clears throat> well, I planted this church roughly almost 12 years ago today with a few friends. And when we planted this church, there were about 40 adults and five kids. Our mission from day one was to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And the most important aspect of this mission has always been making disciples. If you don't make disciples, you won't be able to plant another church and you won't be able to renew a city. It's all about disciple making. <clears throat> well, in the beginning, the only way we could really make disciples was by going outside of the walls of the church building and building relationships with non-Christians and inviting them into our missional communities or our church gathering. And it was there that we saw God change their hearts. God brought them into his family and turned them into disciple makers as well. Well, in the past 12 years, we have made a lot of disciples this way. But God has also been showing us that there's another vitally important way of making disciples. And that's the disciple making process of having children and then training them in God's ways. In other words, in the beginning, we were primarily on mission to outsiders. But as we have grown as a church, we are also on mission to our children. Our children are a large part of our mission here at the church, and we are called by God to disciple them. And God has greatly blessed us with a lot of children around here. Nearly 40% of our church is below the age of 12. 
we have got to be the youngest church in the Quad Cities. <laughs> and I'm not joking either. Every single week, just in Davenport alone, we also have a congregation in Moline, just in Davenport alone, we have between 125 and 150 kids between our two services. Our kids ministry is the largest ministry we have as a church. Alicia, our, our deaconess of Sacred City Kids, has over 80 volunteers in order to serve our kids and help our parents disciple them. Many of you have been faithfully serving in our kids' ministry for years, and for that I want to say thank you. Thank you for helping me disciple my kids, and thank you for helping all the other parents disciple their kids. You are a crucial leader and disciple maker in our church. And Jesus said that he didn't come to this earth to, to be served, rather he came to serve. That's why when Jesus changes our hearts, one of the things he does in us is he makes us servants who serve others as a way of life. Jesus also told us that our kids were important to him. He says that his kingdom belongs to them. And anyone who serves them, Jesus says, serves him. Jesus was adamant that children are an important part of his church and we are all called to serve our kids in some capacity. Towards that end, one of the largest needs we have as a church at the moment is for servant leaders in our kids' ministry. We currently need 20 more volunteers. Do you hear that? 20, not two we need 20 more volunteers. See, here's the problem. We, a lot of our volunteers are moms, right? Moms who are continuing to have babies. And so when they have babies, they step out of serving for a little while, right? And so we need more people to step up and to step into this role for us at our church. So if you are not currently serving in our kids' ministry, we are asking that you would do so. We are asking that you would volunteer, that you would see Alicia. You would talk with one of our hospitality volunteers in the back about how to get signed up and how to, to help us serve our church. I sincerely ask you to step up. One Sunday, you might get here, and I'm just not here to preach because I've got to serve the kids, okay? Like, that's how desperate we're, we're in need of volunteers right now. I'm next. I'm, the, I'm next in line, okay? So now listen, this is important, obviously, for our church because 40% of our church and 40% of the disciples we're making are below the age of 12. So it's an important aspect uh, in disciple making, but it's also an important aspect in your own discipleship. I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to that as they were teaching the young people, God made something real to them or God made something true to them or they realize that they are a servant like Jesus made them into a servant and they're made to serve. And yes, serving our children is difficult. It's meant to be, right? But it's also beneficial. It's also fruitful. We have all kinds of evidences of grace coming out of pe people over there volunteering and serving and seeing the light bulb of faith come on in a, in a kid's eyes when they get something important about Jesus. So this is important in your own discipleship and it makes our church a more hospitable place for our kids to learn about Jesus and to learn about the gospel. So I invite you to step into that, please. Um, if you're not volunteering, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, and that's all the announcements I've got this morning. Let me pray for us and we can get into the text of scripture this morning. Father God, 
We thank you for all the work that you've done to get us here. We don't even know how your grace has preserved us, how your sovereign grace has called us into existence and brought us here, all the millions of decisions it took for us to get here, and you are guiding and leading every single one of them. God, you are here to speak to us this morning. Your word is here to instruct us that we are finite and we need the infinite wisdom of God. We need you to speak into our darkness. We need your light to shine in the dark corners of our heart. God, I am a fallen man and I'm finite and I need you to help me. I can't communicate this truth clearly without your help. And so, Holy Spirit, you came to instruct our hearts in the way that we should go, to instruct us in the truth, to shine a light on Jesus and the gospel. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it be all of you and none of me. And I ask for your sheep to hear your voice this morning. Let every young person, let every elderly person, every person that is in Christ, I pray that they would hear your word as uh, word read and preached this morning as directly from you. I pray that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you are new here, we are currently studying the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. In the Bible, we're doing this in order to better understand our origins. We want to know where do we come from and what are we for? The world out there doesn't have any idea. They think they know where we come from, but then when you ask, well, what are we for? They have no idea what we're for. Well, the Bible knows where we came from, God, and it knows what we are for. And so we're studying the scriptures to find out what is our purpose in life? What is a human being? What is a man and woman? And today we're going to look at marriage. What is the institution of marriage? It is a universal uh, reality in every culture around the world. And where did it come from? Why do men and women get married? Well, we're going to study that this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the first ever wedding ceremony and marriage that God has created Adam and Eve and he created them, we saw last week, in unique and distinct ways. He created Adam from the dust of the ground and placed him in the garden alone and told him alone to work it and keep it and to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he did, he was gonna die. That was his mission. But then God said, it's not good. Remember, he named all the animals. Then God said, it's not good that man should be alone. That means Adam could not accomplish the mission God gave him all by himself. He needed, and the word that God used was helper. He needed a helper to accomplish his mission of being fruitful and multiplying and taking dominion over all the earth. So what did God do? Excuse me. God caused a deep sleep to fall over Adam. Now, this is nothing new, right, men? This is going to happen to me in about three hours. All right, I hit my lazy boy after preaching two sermons, and God causes a deep sleep. My wife's like, there's so many kids, and it's so loud. How do you do this? I don't know. God did it with Adam. He does it with me, and I'm my lazy boy. But in this deep sleep, while he was knocked out, what did God do? God took one of Adam's ribs, and he used it to create the woman. And the Bible says he fashioned woman, and it's a, it's a unique word. He made a, remember, Adam lacked a helper that was fit for him. So 
God made Adam and then God custom designed Eve to fit with Adam. And she is to be his helper. She, he, she's created out of his side. Matthew Henry, a famous commentator and scholar, said of this reality, quote, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved." The man, God creates the man and woman. We we saw last week, they're equal in essence. They're equal in dignity, value, and worth. But they're created uniquely with different roles. The man is the covenantal head, the representative before God of the woman. And the woman was uniquely made to be the glory of the man. Remember last week we said that he is the glory of God. It says in Corinthians, she is the glory of man. She is the glory of the glory. She is glory squared. She was made from Adam for Adam. She was equal in dignity, value, and worth, and yet distinct in purpose and function. She alone has the potential to create carry and nurture new life in her body. And though she was taken from Adam's body, from this point on in human history, every single child will come from a mother's womb. This is why Adam gave her the name Eve, which meant the mother of all living. But this isn't just a picture of a man and a woman coming together to make a baby. It's the context that every single child is meant to be born into. It's the establishment and blessing of the institution of marriage and family by God himself. God custom designs and creates Eve or Adam. God then custom designs and makes Eve to fit perfectly with and for Adam. Then God brings the woman to the man and Adam bursts out in wonder saying, in essence, she is the best thing I have ever seen. She is my other. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is the missing piece to my puzzle. She is my glory. This is one of my favorite moments in every single wedding that I get to do. I love the tradition that says that man is man and wife, man and woman are not supposed to see each other in, on the wedding day before the ceremony. I love that. The last time he saw her, right? Usually she was in sweatpants, right? Drops her off. She's in baggy sweatpants, right? And his t-shirt or something. And then she disappears with all the ladies. But then hours later, the music starts to play and we take our places. The groomsmen and the bridesmaids make their way down the aisle. And then the moment comes. She enters the room. All the guests stand and the groom's breath gets taken away. In that God-ordained moment, every groom is Adam seeing Eve for the first time. He's standing there at the altar looking at his Eve. He knows this is a gift of God for me. She was custom designed for me. She is my glory. 
She is the most beautiful and precious human being I have ever seen. And I am the luckiest guy in the world. And most men think, most men think in this moment, how will I ever be good enough for her? They think, I, I think I've tricked her into this moment. And there's a weight on them in this moment. There's a reality and a glory on them in this moment. When he's asking himself, how will I have the strength to provide for this woman? How will I have the strength to protect her? How will I have the strength to lead her? How am I a good enough man to be faithful to her for the rest of our lives? This is a weighty moment. It's, pro- it's one of the most powerful moments in a man's life. It's in this moment where I usually turn away from the beautiful bride. All eyes are on the bride at this moment, but I usually turn away from the beautiful b- bride to look upon the face of the groom. And 99 times out of 100, he is overwhelmed and undone. I've seen the most stoic men right? Wouldn't know an emotion if it hit him in the face. All of a sudden, I turn to him, and he's just undone, ugly crying. This is why men don't wear makeup, all right? In this moment, he is a goner. Why? They were made for this. God made the world for a man and a woman to come together like this and to commit themselves to a life of fidelity and love. Here's how God says it in Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. King James Version said, Leave And cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This has been and forever will be the only definition of marriage. Any deviation from this is a counterfeit. It's not a marriage. It's a mirage. Here's what Jesus said about marriage in the gospel of John chapter 19. He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus, the eternal son of God, when asked about marriage, quotes Genesis 2 verse 24. And then he adds to that, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Did you hear that little detail? It's not really little. What God joins together. What God joins together, let not man separate. When a man and a woman come before God in marriage, God is joining them together in a lifelong union called a covenant. And this covenant is not to be broken 
except in extremely rare cases of adultery, abuse, or abandonment. So Jesus confirms the Genesis account. Thousands of years after it was written, Jesus said, marriage still is the same. Marriage hasn't changed. Marriage doesn't evolve. Marriage is as constant as the laws of gravity. Trying to redefine marriage is like trying to redefine gravity as you are falling out of an airplane. You might make some convincing arguments, but eventually reality wins and things will get messy for you. From our text this morning, we learn that marriage has always been a lifelong covenant between one woman and one man made in the presence of God. Now let's, make, let's break that down this morning. First, marriage is a covenant. Well, what is a covenant? We don't use that language very often anymore. We see it in our text where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. These words translated in the ESV as hold fast or in the King James Version as cleave, it literally means to be glued together. It's covenantal language. It's a bond that is meant to be unbreakable. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. A marriage is a covenant that God has joined together. This is why the dissolution of marriage or the breaking of marriages gets so messy. Because two people have been covenanted together, they've been glued together, and there is no separation without things breaking and splintering and being destroyed. There is no clean separation where we go back to being single like we were before. No, marriage, the, the dissolution of marriage, divorce brings destruction. Now, many of us don't understand what marriage is because we don't understand what a covenant is. We have been raised to believe that marriage is nothing more than a piece of paper. I don't know how many single people have told me I don't need a piece of paper to tell me who I can love and who I can't love. I don't know how many single people who have told me, well, yeah, we're not married, but we're married in our hearts. Or maybe we've, we think that marriage, a covenant, is just a contract between two people. Well, a contract basically defines the stipulations of a business relationship. If you do this for me, then, then I will do that for you. In other words, if you make your car payment, we will allow you to keep and use our car. <laughs> but as soon as you stop making your car payment, we take back our car. Now, a covenant is much different. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a bond in blood. It's the highest of all human contracts or, or human agreements. It's lifelong. It, the way that we say it in our marriage vows is till death do us part, right? Think about that. The happiest day of our lives, the most joyous celebration, and we bring death into the mix, 
Why? Because marriage is meant to be a bond in blood. And this is why modern day marriages don't say things like that very often. Their vows are just quite benign and quite stupid, frankly. I promise to be a Bears fan with you. I promise to always make you breakfast and I promise we'll always get lattes together. I prom- And just bore me to death. Because first off, I'm like, she's lying. I give her a month. She'll do that for a month. And he's lying. No, no, no. A covenant is a bond in blood till death do us part. And it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So it's not just an agreement between two human parties. God is the one overseeing the covenant. God is the one we're actually making our primary agreement with. See, a contract can be withdrawn if the other person is not fulfilling their side of the bargain. So if you stop making your car payment, they, the repo man can come and take your car. A covenant is different. In a covenant, I am making a commitment to have and to hold, to love and to lead, to cherish and to protect my wife above all others for the rest of my life, no matter what she does. No matter how I feel. A contract says, if you don't honor me, if you don't uphold your side of the bargain, then I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to cherish you. See, that's what a contract is. You do your part, I do my part. A covenant is saying, I am going to do my part no matter what. In a covenant, I am making a commitment before God to love my wife. And she is making a commitment to God to honor and respect me. A contract is nothing more than a business deal. And many marriages are functionally just this. A business arrangement. If he doesn't do his chores, then she won't fulfill her conjugal duties to him. If she doesn't show respect to him or fulfill her conjugal duties with him, he might be unfaithful to her with pornography or an affair. She's not fulfilling her side, so I'm not going to fulfill my side. He's not fulfilling his side, so I'm not going to fulfill my side. See, when you bring marriage into the business world, things go bad. And she starts looking for a better business arrangement out there. The majority of divorces are filed by women. No wonder so many marriages are failing today. Now, a covenantal understanding of marriage says, I have made a covenant with God. A bond in blood. It was in the presence of God where we were joined together by him in a holy ceremony of marriage. And therefore, I have duties to my covenant. I have duties to love her. Yes, she has duties to respect and honor me. But these duties are to God first. So I am to fulfill my duties to her even if she isn't fulfilling hers to me. Now, why is this important? Many reasons, but here's a few. The covenant of marriage is the only institution that is secure and safe enough to be totally vulnerable with your whole self and to raise children in. 
In order for us to be totally vulnerable with another person, we need the stability and the safety of a covenant. And in order for us to raise children to be their fully functioning selves made in the image of God, they need the security and stability of the covenant of marriage. Let me break that down a little bit. Security. I need to know that even if I have a bad day or a incredibly difficult season in life, that my wife is still going to be faithful to me and love me and support me, even if I'm failing. I need that. If I don't have that, if I don't believe that, I can never open myself up to her and trust her. In fact, it's in these moments where her trust and her love for me actually, in one ways, sanctifies me. It, she is being my helper in these moments and her love is having a transformative effect upon me. I'm learning to trust her more. I'm learning to love her more as she's respecting me and honoring me in my weakest moments. Her gracious love, when I don't deserve it, actually changes me into a better man. And I have another one of those moments where I'm looking at down the aisle and see a woman who's way too good for me, right? And I'm thinking, did I trick her into this? I'm such a, she, I'm a fool. I make mistakes and she still loves me. I don't deserve this. And that changes me into a better man. In the same way, she needs to know that even if she gets sick or, God forbid, would be bedridden and unable to fulfill her duties to me, that I am still going to be faithful to her and I'm going to love her no matter what. See, two people who have made a covenant with God to love each other as much as they love themselves, that bond is unbreakable. This is one of the things that makes Christian marriage so special. And in a day and age that is more confused than ever and more chaotic than ever and is reaping the consequences of that chaos more than ever with unstable lives, unstable emotional lives, unstable intellectual lives, unstable families, wreaking just havoc in our culture. I think Christian marriage is going to be one of the most beautiful apologetics of the gospel to this culture. When they look into the church and they see beautiful people happily submitting themselves and loving one another in the covenant of marriage, right? It's going to be a beautiful picture of the gospel. And guess what? The only covenant where children can be raised successfully right? This is what God gave us. So our marriages are important and they're evangelistic in that sense. It's also the only ideal environment that children are meant to be raised in. Children are, being, are meant to be raised in a covenantal home where there is no fear or uncertainty mom and dad have a little argument. There's no fear or uncertainty. Is dad going to come home? Is mom going to leave? If that happens, who are we going to go with? What's it going to look like for us? 
Both mom and dad are necessary for a child to develop in a holistic and healthy human being. How many of us in this room this morning have been warped and wounded in our soul and in our development because of the instability of the homes that we grew up in? Whatever way. Could have been the absence of a father, the absence of a mother, could have been the volatility of a, volatility of a father, volatility of a mother. In some way, an unstable home. And we know it's, it's damaged us. It's shaped us in profound ways. Second, the safety of a covenant. In a covenant, two people are committing before God to be faithful to one another and to give their whole selves to each other for life. They're saying, my family is now yours for good or bad, right? You get us all. My money is now yours. Or actually today in, a, in t- today's age, it's my school debt is now yours. <laughs> Congratulations. It's one of the jokes I always make at the father. When the father's handing over the hand to the, to the husband, I usually get to say, all that student loans, all those student loans now belong to you. Right? What's it saying? My stuff is yours. My heart is yours. My life is yours. My future is yours. And then, hear that, two people giving everything to one another. In the, in the presence of God, giving everything, I'm all in. Everything I've got is yours. And then after they do that, in the presence of God and before these witnesses, they give their bodies to the other person as well. That's the consummation of the wedding. Sex is meant to be the consummation of what two people have already done with the rest of their life. They've, made, they've put it all in. They've made commitments to one another. And now they come together. This is why the scripture says they are no longer two, but one flesh. And Corinthians says that The man's body no longer belongs just to him, but to his wife. And the wife's body no longer belongs just to her, but belongs to him. They are two. They they were two, and now they've been made one flesh. The covenant of marriage, listen, is the only place safe enough to do this without great damage to your soul. Human beings were not made to be promiscuous. They were not made for sex outside of a covenant union. It's too miraculous. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there's deep magic that goes on in the consummation of marriage. Back to our definition here. So one, we see that marriage is a covenant, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. The next thing we learn is marriage is an exclusive covenant union between one man and one woman. Men and women are different and distinct from one another. Marriage is the covenantal union of opposites, male and female. Anything else is a counterfeit. It is not a marriage. It's a mirage. Now, our culture disagrees with this. 
Our culture has the absolutely ridiculous, you ask our culture to define, they can't define anything because it's all about their feelings. You ask, what is our culture? What's the number one thing our culture says about marriage? Marriage is about two people who love each other. They shouldn't be able, they, they should be able to get married. That's the ridiculous definition of our culture. Two people who love each other, they should be able to get married. And who is anybody to step in their way? I say this is ridiculous because it, all it takes is for one person to go two. Well, first of all, why just two? You're being kind of exclusive. If you think it's just two, why can't we have polygamy? Why can't multiple people get married together? Why can't there be one big happy marriage family? Right? Why, why are we only defining it between one and two? Oh, oh so you think we should ex- exclude some people. Oh, so the polygamists are out. There's no LGBT P yet. We don't have a P in there yet. But that plus sign can bring a whole lot more crazy. Okay? Okay, so you want to exclude the polygamists. Why? By what standard? By what definition? If they love each other, who cares? Oh, so we're, we're both exclusivists now. We're both excluding somebody. All right. Now, now we can go even further than that. I think, I think you probably want to exclude more people. I, I think you know it's more than just two people that want to love each other because can a man marry a sister? Why not? What about his cousin? Second cousin? I am from Alabama, by the way. Real tight. Real tight. Right? No. They, what if they love each other? See, uh, see, on top of that, we're all making, we're all being exclusive somewhere. What, why, what is your definition of marriage? Why would you exclude marital relations? Can a man marry his mother? And you say, that's ridiculous. All of these things have been done by human beings. Okay? This is not ridiculous. You need to have foresight. Either look back in history and see it's already been done or have foresight to see that's next on the horizon. Actually, what's next on the horizon is even crazier than that. Do they have to be even people at all? Can you marry a robot? You think that's ridiculous. Just wait. Just wait. Listen, by what standard do you say that we can't? If love is love, why can't I love who I want to love? See, this is, I know this is, sounds a little ridiculous to us right now. But Christians actually have a definition of marriage. And our definition doesn't come from our feelings. Our definition comes from the creator of marriage, God himself. Our standard is God's word. He created marriage and he said that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. Sex outside of marriage is against his created order and against his revealed will. And therefore it is a sin against God and it brings danger and and problems to society as well. It has got other ramifications as well. Adultery is a sin. Polygamy is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. Divorce, except in the instances of adultery, abandonment, or abuse, is a sin. 
All of these sins are against God's creational order and design and bring great consequences to our souls and also to our world. Brings damages to our family and to our society. If we commit them or listen, or sanction them or give our approval of them in any way. This is why Christians should never attend a so-called homosexual marriage, wedding. Listen to what Paul says about love. Here's one of Paul's lines in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. What are you doing at a wedding? You are there to rejoice. You are there to participate in the celebration. You are there to applause and smile and be happy over the covenantal union. That covenant can only take place between one man and one woman. And so a Christian should never rejoice at what wrongdoing. A Christian should never attend something like this. So first, marriage is a covenant Second, marriage is an exclusive union between one man and one woman. And third, marriage creates a new family unit as, with man as the head of the covenant home. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this family, this new family unit is now the primary institution in any society. The family is the first church. The family is the first school. The family is the first government in any society. And the the primary one, the most important one. So that's what a marriage is. What's a marriage for? I always talk about this in my my wedding sermons. Marriage is primarily for four things. And I'm going to go through them really quickly. One, marriage is for mutual companionship, help, and comfort for each other. Marriage is a beautiful comfort when you're going through a difficult season, when you're going through struggles. I mean, marriage is a beautiful help and comfort. Second, marriage is for multiplying our missional effectiveness. Two can do a lot more than one together. Part of coming together is being fruitful and multiplying. Of course, that means procreating and having children, but that also just means our missional effectiveness, that two people can have a more industrious and fruitful home. They can produce more things. They can do more good. Marriage is to multiply our missional effectiveness. Three, marriage is for rearing children in the ways of the Lord. Like I said, it's the first church. It's the first school. It's the first government. Marriage is meant to raise human beings to worship and glorify God forever. And lastly, for the biggest shocker of them all, marriage is meant to point to the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. We read this last week. If you weren't here, you should probably listen to it. I'm not going to get into it too much today. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Look, even as as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church 
submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, wives, I want you to hear this, okay? The command to you is to submit to your husband. And you say, that's not fair. He's a sinner, right? You're right. He is a sinner. You're called to submit to Christ and submit to your husband and trust God with your husband. That as he submits to Christ, God's going to be working on him. But here's the deal. He's called to lead you. Do you see that? He's called to love you. That's his command. And guess what? You're a sinner too. Just, it's hard for a, 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 a woman or a wife to submit to her sinful husband. It's also hard for a hu- husband to love his sinful wife. It's hard. God's calling us to do hard things here. Let me show you this. Let's keep going. Husbands, love your wife. How? Oh my goodness. How? How are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church. That's our job description, men. Ladies, do you want that job description? Really? Our job is to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave up. In the prime of his life, he gave up his future. He gave up, right? He gave up his wants. He gave up his earthly desires. He gave up his life and he literally laid it down for us. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word. So that he might, look what, he, what he's doing, present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man, he quotes it again, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So just as Jesus quoted it in the gospels, Paul quotes it here in the epistles. Look at verse 32. This mystery, first off, in the Greek, it's mega mystery. It says here, this mystery is profound. The actual Greek says, this is a mega mystery. And what is that mega mystery? That it refers marriage between one man and one woman. Look, refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages are meant to point forward and signify the, the way that Christ is the covenant head who lays down his life for us, the bride of Christ. The lifelong covenantal union between one man and one woman is supposed to be a sign that signifies the relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. And let me say this, every single marriage between a man and a woman is a sign that points to something. God made it that way. You are either pointing towards the relationship to Christ and his church or your marriage is a lie pointing to something else. It's telling a different story. If you're not laying down your life to love your wife, then you're, you're saying that, that Jesus didn't lay down his life for church, for his church. You're telling a different gospel with your marriage than the true gospel. Remember what we've already learned so far in the series. In the beginning, 
God. God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call him a Trinitarian being. Before God laid the foundations of the earth, God had already chosen a bride for his son. That bride is the Christian church, the elect of God. The church is every single person who trusts in Christ for salvation. Paul teaches us that our marriages are meant to be signs that point towards that reality, that ultimate union. Did you know in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be married anymore? Why? Because we'll be married to Christ. Our marriages point towards a greater reality. God designed marriage as a sign to point towards the end, which is Jesus Christ himself being united with his bride. Think about it. The Trinity made a covenant in the Garden of Eden with our first parents. They chose to break that covenant. And ever since then, human beings have been born in sin. That means no matter how good of a person you are, and you can be pretty good, you have still broken covenant with God in some way. And what what were the consequences of breaking covenant? The consequences, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. The consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But this is how marriage is meant to point to the gospel. Even though we have been faithful to God, unfaithful, even though we have been unfaithful to God in a million different ways, Jesus pursued us As the ultimate husband, Jesus shows us what a good husband does. Jesus left heaven for us and came after us. Jesus lived a perfect life for us. Even while we were sinning against him, we were unfaithful to him. And Jesus remains faithful to his covenant. Why? Because Jesus made a covenant with God himself in in the Trinity. I'm going to be faithful no matter what my bride does. Jesus was our new covenant head and remained faithful and true even when we were unfaithful. Jesus then goes to the cross and takes our punishment and dies for us to redeem us, to buy us out of our slavery to sin. This was his bride price to purchase us. So that we would be free from our shackles and we could love him back in return. And then Jesus rose from the dead, putting death in its grave to give us eternal life with him. And now Jesus reigns in heaven, restoring the whole world until the day that we will meet him in the new heavens and the new earth. A day that in the book of Revelation is described as the marriage supper of the lamb. Here's how Revelation 19 says it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Look, this is a wedding ceremony here. That's what you do at a wedding ceremony. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. 
And his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? We're the bride. Christians, we're the bride. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God, here's some bad news for us. When God finds us, I'm going to say a bad word. When God finds us, we're whores. He loves us so much. He redeems us. He saves us. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He changes us and our deeds begin to change. He changes us from the inside, but what he does on the inside comes to our outside. And now we begin to obey God in a new way and love God in a new way. And we go from a whore to a beautiful bride. That's the gospel. It's offensive. It's then and there that we will see the consummation of Jesus' work in us, on us, and for us. Revelation 21 says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, come, think of an angel here, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What? Glorified Jesus is there and an angel saying, come, I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to, why? Nobody cares about the groom on the wedding day. Let's just be real. <laughs> right? As long as he's in a suit, that's okay. Yeah, he looks presentable finally. Thank. Why is he wearing tennis shoes? Who, who let him do that? Who let him do that? Right? It's about the bride. The wedding day is about the bride. Guess who's the bride? We're the bride. In the presence of a glorified Jesus, who cares about the bride? The angel says, you, you won't believe what you're going to look like someday when you're washed free of all your stains of sin. When you're renewed and restored and Jesus has been working on you for so long, you won't believe what you're going to look like. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God. The city, us, the saints, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. See, Jesus' love is a covenantal, transformational love. It's not the love that the world offers, just an affirming love. Oh yeah, you be you. You do you. You go where you want to go. You be who you want to be. And I'll just affirm you, affirm you, affirm you, even if you're destroying yourself. No, no. Jesus's love is a covenantal, one-way, pervasive love. It's a transformational love. Jesus never turns away from us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. His love is confrontational. It's disciplinary at times. It, that means his love sometimes is one of the most painful realities of life. Why? He's performing surgery. He's doing good work in me and it's love in action. It's a harsh and dreadful thing sometimes. Why? Because it's a love that transforms us from one degree of glory to another. A love that turns sinners into saints. 
unfaithful people into faithful people. Enemies to family, rebels to sons and daughters of God. And folks, this is what our marriages are meant to be a symbol of. This type of covenantal transformative love. Is your marriage a picture of the gospel? Let me pray for us. Father God, these truths are too great for us. The answer to that question is universally, my marriage is a dim picture at best of the gospel. I am prone to selfishness, prone to laziness, prone to weakness, prone to turn away from my headship call to love and lay down my life for my wife as Christ did for the church. And wives are prone to take over the headship of the home, prone not to respect and honor. Our pictures are a dim picture at best. Lord Jesus, our hope is not in our own strength to purify and to beautify and to improve our marriages. Our hope is that Jesus Christ, our covenantal head, is in heaven at work on us now. His love is transforming us right now from one degree of glory to another. Would you help us believe it and turn from our sin? And as we come to this meal, this meal is one of your means, Jesus, to transform us, to work on us. You, in Corinthians, it says, this meal that we eat is a participation in the body of Christ and a participation in the blood of Christ. We're participating in the reality of the gospel as we share this meal together. Father, would it go down deep into us and transform us? Would we search our hearts, turn from our sin, not take this meal in an unworthy manner? Would we honor the body? Would we honor the blood? In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.